the cycle of existence that each of our streams of consciousness undergoes is known as samsara, the endless cycling through the many realms of existence in this frantic and frenetic search for happiness. The word samsara comes from the verb sarati, which means to flow, to move on, to flow on, to fare on. With the connotations or the understanding that this flowing on and this faring on is endless and inevitable. Where we find ourselves in our life now is no accident. And where we're going in our future is equally no accident. We can infer our past intentions and actions by looking at our present experience. And as my favorite rock group has so eloquently stated, I can tell your future, oh, just look what's in your hand. This law of karma is the natural law of cause and effect, the law of intentionality. And by correctly understanding the law of karma, we see that this present moment is conditioned by the past. It is also conditioned by the future. And if we understand that, we can see that karma offers us a lesson from the past and an opportunity for the future. I recently gave a talk on the Buddha's teachings, understandings of the five aggregates. And in that, the Buddha analytically deconstructs experience into its component pieces. And these component pieces are none other than the great variety of mental and physical experiences that we all know so well. And though each one of these mental and physical moments has its own unique characteristic, it does not contain an essence, an indestructible essence. All of our experiences mental, physical, and other, if there are any other, are conditioned. They arise due to conditions, due to a conjunction of innumerable number of conditions. But in and of themselves, there really is no essence. Tonight I want to try to speak of the Buddha's teachings on dependent origination, which is rather than a deconstruction of the moment, it's 
a look at the dynamic synthesis of eternal and infinite proportions of all of the conditions that unfold to create this magical display called life, which is this vast and extraordinarily intricate weaving together of the lives of all beings and all things throughout all times. It can't get much vaster than that. (laughs) Within this understanding, we all are woven into this vast web of life. And as Garcia has so eloquently put it, the wheel is turning and you can't slow it down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. (laughs) Had to get that in there. The Buddha's search for freedom from suffering began with a deep and penetrating recognition of the suffering of growing old, getting sick, and dying. And he asked the question, what is it? that is the precondition. What is it that conditions old age, disease, and death? Understanding that if he could get a handle on that, then the other would not follow. And he said, well, being born is the causal condition for growing old and dying. So he said, okay, what is the condition for being born? And he looked with his penetrating wisdom into his experience, and he said, well, the causal condition for being born is all those actions we have taken in the hope of further self-existence. Okay. What is the causal condition for doing all that? And he understood, through his looking, that it was from clinging. Okay. What's the cause of clinging? What is the condition that precedes clinging? Craving. Okay. What's the condition that precedes craving? Oh, feeling pleasant and unpleasant feelings. What's the condition that precedes those pleasant and unpleasant feelings? And he discovered that it was contact with sensory experience. Okay. What is the condition or what conditions that pleasant and unpleasant feeling? Contact between a sense object and a sense 
door, sense base. What is, what conditions contact? Having senses. Without senses, no contact. Okay. What conditions having senses, sense bases? Having a body, having a mind. What conditions having a body and having a mind? Consciousness. Okay, now we're getting down there. What, <laughs> what is it that conditions the arising and the appearance of consciousness? Karma. Why do we perform karma? Because of ignorance. And then some wise guy in the audience said, um, what conditions ignorance? And the Buddha said, tendencies, the biases of the mind, the tendencies. And he footnoted it by saying, inconceivable is the beginning of this wandering on in birth and death. Not to be discovered is a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth. It's been our tendency forever to act out of ignorance in pursuit of self-existence and happiness through experiencing pleasurable sensory contact, enjoying those pleasant feelings, craving them, clinging to them, acting in pursuit of more of them, giving rise to new birth, and everything that follows. This whole endless cycle of samsara set in motion and kept in motion by the lawful unfolding of these links of conditioning. As we go through this cycle, I want to explain each of these links a bit. But we should keep in mind that each being has their own unfolding, their own unique unfolding process. There is a unique psychophysical unfolding happening here and in each one of those, on each one of those Zabutans out there. There are places where those unfolding links intersect. But for the most part, they each retain their own distinct boundaries. The links in this dependent origination are related through cause and effect. The former is the cause for the latter. The latter is the effect of the former. And it goes that way around and around. There is no master chain maker somewhere who is making this all happen. Just as when we throw a ball into the air, there's nobody up there throwing it back. It comes back to Earth due to the natural law of gravity. 
proximate cause of it coming back was the throwing it up. But nevertheless, there is no being making that happen. It's the natural law. The unfolding of the mind is equally natural. There's no one making it happen, not outside of the process, nor within the process. It's conditions unfolding other conditions. So when we look to the past, as the Buddha did, we see that ignorance is the first condition for this endless cycling throughout samsara. What is ignorance? In its most basic element, it's not knowing, delusion, illusion, living under the illusion, not seeing correctly. And it varies from gross to subtle, the very gross delusions and ignorance being not even knowing the present moment, which is fairly common in itself. And the subtler delusions or illusions or ignorance that we um, live with on a moment-to-moment basis is misinterpreting what we're in touch with, um, believing that composite reality as we conventionally speak it and see it is really it, down to the most subtle belief in there being someone, an entity within this whole process. And that's a very subtle ignorance or very subtle misunderstanding, misinterpretation. And so we can see that ignorance is a pervasive condition in our life at many, many layers of the mind. And as such, it is the most obstinate and therefore the last of the fetters, the last of the calaces, the last of the torments of the mind to leave in this, uh, to be uprooted in this process of awakening. It is contained within the mental, uh, the five aggregates, in the sankhara aggregate, in the formations aggregate. All of these links, in fact, are contained within the five aggregates. And so it gives us a clue as to how we actually begin to see through this smokescreen of uh, endlessly pursuing a false happiness. So what is it that we are ignorant of? that sets, this, sets and keeps this wheel in motion. We are ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. We're ignorant of the experiential reality, I should say, of the Four Noble Truths. We might know them, but much of the time we are not experiencing or living the truth of them. We miss the First Noble Truth because we seek happiness through pleasant experience or through avoiding unpleasant experience. We miss the second noble truth by believing, if I get what I want, 
then I'll be happy. We have this, this belief that craving, clinging, and hanging on are really the way to happiness, once I get it. We miss the third noble truth by believing that the end of suffering, or that true happiness, is to be found in some sort of endless sensual indulgence of pleasantness, or we may believe or we may look forward to some sort of sensory or emotional oblivion as true relief, true happiness. Or maybe we think that there is some ethereal, subtle, heavenly abode somewhere that is that true liberation from suffering. And so we miss the true understanding of the third noble truth. We miss the fourth noble truth, or we miss the, we're ignorant of the fourth noble truth when we believe that I'm already free. I'm already happy. Or it, it'll happen automatically. Or someone else will take care of it for me. And we live by these misunderstandings for much of the time until we begin to practice. Until we really begin to practice the Dharma. And then we see, as yogis, all of you see, and those who practice acknowledging the truth see the first noble truth. This psychophysical process that we are is unpleasant. There is no stability. There's no security. It is painful, oppressive. We investigate the truth of dukkha. Don't we? I mean, we all got a pretty good handle on the truth of dukkha. I don't think there's anybody in the room that would say, I think he might have been wrong. Right? And we get it, you know. It's, it's not obscure, really. And yet, if you don't look, you don't see it. And so, the first noble truth does need to be investigated. We, as yogis, also see the second noble truth. The reason we suffer is we cling to some something that's not happening yet, some idea of perfection, some idea of wanting something other than what is. And we see that, the, that when we suffer, we're not present with the way things are. It's that simple. Eventually we come down to seeing whenever we're suffering, we're not being present. And we're clinging to something else. And so we learn that abandoning craving is really the relief. We, 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 we live that, that as much as we can let go of our desire and attachment and craving, and conversely, the avoidance of unpleasant. To the extent that we do that, we are not ignorant of the third noble truth. The third noble truth, we discover as yogis that there is a cessation to dukkha. There are 
times in our practice when we're not tormented by the hindrances, when there's a certain ease in our practice, and when the hindrances are not present, there is indeed some genuine relief from suffering. And that relief can become much more profound and much more subtle as we practice and develop deeper states of uh, concentration. And when we open to the truth of impermanence, dukkha, and anatta, or the essencelessness of phenomena, when we really open to this is the way things are, those three characteristics, then we realize on a moment-to-moment basis the end of suffering, the third noble truth. We as yogis also know and discover that the way to this end of suffering on a moment-to-moment basis is developing purity of intention, purity of mind, and purity of understanding. By practicing the three trainings of the Eightfold Path. And in every moment of mindfulness, those three trainings, or the eight factors of the Noble Path, are present. And so as yogis, practicing the Dharma, practicing the truth, we are not ignorant of the Four Noble Truths. And therefore, we begin to cut, or we begin to put the brakes on the momentum of this endless wheel of unfolding conditions called samsara, just by being aware of these Four Noble Truths, in our moment-to-moment experience. Reading them in a book, knowing them, being able to list them, you know, one, two, three, four, that's not it. It's in the moment's experience, realizing dukkha, cravings, its cause, letting go is the end of dukkha, and the way to do that is to be present, to be mindful. Ignorance is the torment, it's the kalesa, it's the, it's the, Uh, seed from which our karmic actions spring. I think it was Trungpa who said, and this is a paraphrase, enlightenment, or the end of suffering, awakening to the truth, is an accident. Dharma practice makes you accident-prone. To the extent that we remain ignorant, it is the cause for undertaking actions, karmic actions, in pursuit of and in the misbelief that happiness comes from pleasure. We move on to link number two. Link number two, sankhara, or those karmic formations, is what we do seeking to gratify our desires. That's link two. Whatever you do to seek to gratify your desires is located there. The mainspring of our actions is our intention. 
intention is a mental state of chetana. It is in the sankhara aggregate, and so it can be noted and noticed, experienced. And it is the intentions that move us to act really unskillfully. To be angry, to be confused, to be greedy, to be... Any action rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion. It is also the mainspring of all actions taken from a wholesome state of mind with the roots of generosity, understanding, loving-kindness. Chaitanya, volition, sankhara is also the mainspring of all those. These actions that we take are karma. And we know from our previous understanding, previous talks, previous experience, that actions have the potential to give result. When supportive conditions are there, the intention behind our actions will produce a result. Now, in this chain of dependent origination, there's an important transition between link two and link three when we move from the past to the present. But rather than seeing these 12 links as an unfolding in chronological time of first one, then two, then three, then four, really these 12 links are a snapshot of each moment. Each moment is conditioned by the past. Each moment is conditioned by the future. And in each moment, the five aggregates arise. What this chain of causality is showing is that the past does give rise to the present. The present does give rise to the future. But in each moment, there is conditioning by the past and the future. Link number three is consciousness. And primarily this link refers to relinking consciousness, which is the first consciousness, the first moment of consciousness in a new life, or some say rebirth consciousness. Uh, There's no rebirth really. Uh, It's a relinking from one existence to another. So it's important to understand how we move from one life to another given the teaching that there's no one here who's doing it. So how is it that we, conventionally speaking, we move from a past life to this life, and from this life to another? It's said that at the moment of death, there arises in the mind, the mind becoming extraordinarily clear, there arises in the mind an image. And the image is of a former action that we've taken, a former karmic action that we've taken. It's an Im- or it can be an image of something, someone, or some place involved in that karmic act, or an image of a future destination can arise. This may sound a little esoteric, so let me put it into 
yogi practical terms. Past karmas, we see them in memories. Karma, a sign of karma, we see in the things and people's events of our past. And a sign of a future destiny, just think of all those plans. What happens in our day-to-day unfolding of the mind, this apparently chaotic tumble of thoughts and memories and plans and aspirations and judgments and It looks chaotic, it's not. And this tumble of mental stuff, which we see going on now, moment to moment, keeps going on through the process of death. Except that one of them, one of those past memories, one of those future plans, one of those things or events or people from our past comes into very sharp, clear focus. And we can't let go. But in that very moment, the life force of this life is cut off. And so what happens is that, as we see here, each moment conditions its following moment. You know, you have an intention, you perform an action, the action... Uh, conditions certain sensations in the body. Those sensations condition certain mental states. Mental states condition certain thoughts. Thoughts condition certain... And it just goes on and on and on. And the same thing happens at the moment of death. Whatever that last vision is that the mind grabs onto, it conditions the next moment. But the life force is cut off right then. And so the next moment takes place in another place, another geographical, if you will, place, in a new existence. And so that first consciousness of a past, of of our new life, is wholly conditioned by the past life. And the stream, the stream of our consciousness, the energy, our life force throughout that whole life is rooted in last life. It is said that this rapidly fluxing life force consciousness that sustains our life here, we experience more moments of that consciousness than any other type of consciousness during our life. And yet, that consciousness is conditioned by our past life. Mostly, we're living conditioned by our past life. No person passes from one moment to the next. No physical entity passes from one moment to the next. It's just cause and effect. And we begin to see this very clearly in our practice. When we see how the moments do not tumble chaotically, out of time. They really do unfold in a very causal way. But it takes a very diligent and very precise noticing to see this happening over and over and over and over again.
and to withdraw this attachment to it as me, as mine, who I am, and see it as this lawful unfolding of conditions. The texts give as an example or a way of pointing to what happens here in this transition by saying, consider an echo. You know, you stand, you stand at a place where echoes can be heard and you say something. Hello. And a little while later, from over there somewhere, you say hello back. Hello. Is that echo the same or different? Well, it's not the same. And it certainly isn't different. It is related to the first articulation of it due to cause and effect. Due to the law of cause and effect. If you stand here and you say hello, hello will come back. You say hello, goodbye does not come back. Right? You, 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 echoes, the, the law of echoes doesn't work that way. Well, the law of the mind in karma doesn't work that way either. Another example that the text used to point to this carrying on or this flowing on, which is samsara, is to consider a flame. Light a candle up back here. When it gets down to the end, light another candle off of it. Let that burn till it gets down to the end. Light another candle off of that. Let that burn till it gets down to the end. And we'll do this from September 22nd to December 16th. On December 16th, is that flame the same or different than the one that started in September? Well, it's certainly not the same flame. But yet, it has been continuous, so it certainly isn't different. It is, or they are related through cause and effect. If you do this, you will get that. And the same thing happens in the mind. And as we pay attention, as we are doing here, very, very precisely to our intentions and what happens following them, our movements and what happens to them, our emotions and what they, precip- what they condition in the body, in the mind, we begin to see, we really begin to see in a very deep, profound, and liberating way the lawful unfolding of what appears to be chaos. It's not. With the arising of a relinking or a rebirth consciousness, we get the five aggregates. We get the whole body, we get the mind, we get, we get the whole package. And that is links three through seven. And within those links, three through seven, we have the five aggregates. And we have the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the place where practice happens. With relinking consciousness, we get a body and mind. 
Link number four, mentality, materiality. We get the psychophysical phenomena that arises in every moment of life, of existence. We get contact with experience, we get attention, we get energy in the mind, we get energy in the body, we get the whole range of greed, anger, delusion, we get the whole range of non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion, we get the body, we get all of these experiences of earth, air, fire, and water, the elements of materiality which we've heard of and will be spoken of more. We get the whole growth, maturing process of whatever existence, whatever form we take from this conditioned by this relinking or this rebirth consciousness. Materiality, the body, needs consciousness to continue to exist. When life is cut off, when consciousness is cut off in this body, this body that cannot maintain itself, it will eventually and in its own time uh, decay. It'll stop. And so we see that consciousness is really the causal condition for this body. Without it, it doesn't happen. With this body, with this mind, we get link number five. We get the sensitivity of our senses. We have the eye sensitivity, the ear sensitivity, nose, tongue, body, and mind, or the heart sensitivity, that, that capability of feeling the mind, feeling emotion, feeling thoughts. The senses are the doors of perception. The senses are the way into the mind. Without senses, we don't know that we got a mind. We don't know anything about it. It is through the senses that we contact the mind, where we enter into the stream of consciousness. With the arising, with the appearance of the senses, we're bound to experience sense contact. Link number six. And sense contact is a universally present phenomena. We are constantly experiencing sense contact. Whether it's through the five senses that we know uh, generally as senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or whether it's through the mind, which is considered a sense, uh, one of the sense doors in the Buddha's understanding. We are always experiencing something. It arises in each moment whenever a sense object comes in contact with the sense door and there is the ignition of sense consciousness. It's not just the physical contact. It's not just the sight coming in contact with the eye or the visible object coming in contact with the eye. It is the ignition of the consciousness 
in which there is the contact. When those three things come together, the sense object, the sense door, and the sense consciousness, then there's contact. The analogy given in the text is the match, the box, and the contact of the match on that little rough piece of sandpaper. If you just put the match on it, it doesn't light. There has to be a uh, uh, a movement to get that contact, to get that ignition of the flame. So too with the mind. Sense object, sense door, the ignition being the sense consciousness, having consciousness there. This contact, this pasa, pasa, contact or sense impression can be very gross and it can be very subtle. As we pay attention to each moment's experience, our ability to recognize sense contact becomes much more sensitive. We feel the contact with our environment much more intensely, exquisitely, sensitively. Actually, it's happening all the time, but in the busyness of our, the busyness and the distractedness of our ordinary life, we don't notice it. And here, when we take the time and are less distracted, we begin to feel just how powerful sensory contact is. It doesn't take much. I mean, just somebody slamming a door, somebody coughing, somebody dropping a, a, a piece of silverware on the floor, somebody rattling their doorknob when you're really still in the room next door. I mean, it, you see how sensitive we become to the impact of sensory contact. Our eyes and our ears, nose, tongue, mouth, body, mind, constantly bombarded, constantly bombarded with contact. Is it any wonder that we want to just fall asleep? Really? Just let, let me turn it off. And yet, cannot. You cannot turn off sensory contact. It's this place, it's in link six, this contact where collectively we receive our karma. All of us sitting in this room right now are hearing the Dhamma. Sense contact. These sounds are touching your ear. The understanding is arising in your mind, hopefully. <laughs> There's a collective karmic result happening right here because of each of our individual unfolding, flowing on, all coming together at this point, right in this moment, from innumerable, I mean, from every corner of the infinite, eternal universe, we all arrive in one place for one same sensory contact in a moment. It's extraordinary. It's just, how did it all happen? Who choreographed this?
the same kind of group karma or collective karma is experienced or the result of collective karma is experienced when all the members of a nation, for example, listen to the propaganda. There is a collective karmic result happening there because of previous actions taken by every one of those members to be there for it. It's not accidental. You know, we, we can see, I mean, it's not accidental that we're here. We get some sense of it. And it's not accidental that anyone else is where they are. They're where they are due to a lawful unfolding of cause and effect, intention, the law of intentionality. What makes it so really difficult to understand is when we see such injustice or apparent injustice in someone's situation, someone's condition. When we consider the vastness of the unfolding of the law of karma, when we consider the vastness of time and the vastness of planes of existence, then we can begin to hold what, from a narrower perspective, looks like a gross injustice. And from a vast, all-encompassing perspective, at least allows for the possibility. When we consider the vastness of the unfolding of the law of karma, when we consider the vastness of time and the vastness of planes of existence, then we can begin to hold what, from a narrower perspective, looks like a gross injustice. And from a vast, all-encompassing perspective, at least allows for the possibility. With each with each sense contact, there arises a feeling, a pleasant or an unpleasant, or a neither pleasant or unpleasant feeling. This is link number seven, Vedana. It is the feeling aggregate uh, of the five aggregates. This feeling, this pleasant or unpleasant feeling, arises in every moment of sense contact, which is every moment of our life. It is this mental state, this factor, this factor of Vedana or feeling, which experiences experience. It feels the experience. It feels grief. It feels loss. It feels desire. It feels rage. It feels joy. It feels happiness. There's no one behind it. It is a quality of the mind. It's a capability of the mind to feel. It's not, it's not personal to me or to you. And it's only through 
not seeing clearly that we claim it as me, as mine, my feeling, who I am. We experience dukkha vedana mentally as disappointment, frustration, stress, envy, jealousy. We experience dukkha vedana in the body as hardness, itching, aching, throbbing, stabbing. We experience sukha vedana, which is the opposite of dukkha. Sukha vedana, which is in the body lightness, pleasantness, tingling. We experience sukha vedana in the mind, happiness, joy, contentment. And we experience the neither sukha nor dukkha vedana in the mind only as non-reactivity. Not sukha, not dukkha. It's equanimity. Here again is where we experience collective karmic result. What was the weather today? Oh yeah, Uh, today, you know. uh, Rainy, drizzly, overcast, a little bit chilly, kind of, uh, mm, right? Somebody from Seattle came in today and said, don't you just love this weather? (laughs) It's so familiar, it's great. You look up in the sky, it's silver. Silver? Doesn't look like silver to me. Well, it's almost collective (laughs) karmic feeling. There's some leeway in how we uh, feel things, but not much. (laughs) We spend a lot of time in practice, right at this point, feeling the pleasantness and unpleasantness of the body, of the mind, All of these experiences of the five aggregates, consciousness, the body, the mind, the senses, the contact with sense objects, the feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness arise, they're all arising in the present moment due to this past karmic action, link number two. The challenge, of course, of, 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 of practice, which all of us have an ex- extremely frustrating time with, is trying to be present. Trying to be present with at least one of these aggregates. Some feeling, some thought, some sensation, something that's happening in the present moment. is very difficult. But nevertheless, that's our instruction. That's our, that's our goal, in a way, to be present. And it is just maddeningly frustrating to not be able to do it. And yet, somehow, we get to where we're really supposed to be going. Insight, understanding, freedom. They just sent space shuttle up into space again, you know, and it came it went up there for nine days and circled around and, and it came down and it was wonderful and I heard during that time, someone, I think someone here told me, actually, you know, when they shoot the space shuttle up, they aim it to the place they want it to go. 97% of the time, 
it's off course. It's either to the left or to the right of where it's supposed to be going. And yet, it gets to where it's supposed to be going by making these innumerable mid-course adjustments, which is exactly what we do in our practice. So if you're off the object 97% of the time, don't worry. Really, it's okay. You will get to where you're going. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's really important, as you can see from this understanding of the links of dependent origination, it's really important to not judge your practice by the pleasantness or unpleasantness of your experience. Because the pleasantness and unpleasantness of your experience is due to something you did in the past. Get it? You can't change the past. It's gone. It's finished. Its results are unfolding, so we still have to experience it. It is not an indication of how well you're doing in the present moment. And here's where the understanding of the law of karma is so liberating. Okay, if we're experiencing the present moment as pretty oppressive and pretty unbearable and pretty painful, let that be a lesson. Really, it's a lesson. But let our reaction and response to it be the opportunity for creating a future that's a little more endurable, enjoyable, a little more free, a little less oppressive. Well, we're at link seven. So the pleasant and unpleasant feelings of link seven that we experience in each moment are really due to past causes, past actions, the intention of past actions. How we respond to those feelings plants the seed of future pleasant and unpleasant experience. Without practice, without awareness, our habit is to crave pleasant and avoid unpleasant. And this is link number eight, tanha, or craving. And it is the craving for more pleasant sensory experience. It's the craving to be away from unpleasant experience. The interesting thing about craving, and I think it's been talked about in previous talks, is it is insatiable. You can feed it all you want and it just gets hungrier. There is, of course, a momentary, there's a temporary satisfaction and relief of that. You know, you're hungry and you you eat something, there's a temporary relief. 
and it comes back. It's something like trying to satisfy thirst by drinking salt water. If you're really thirsty and that's all you've got, you'll drink it. And you will just get thirstier and thirstier the more you drink. And it's the same with craving. The more we say, oh, I just, just got to satisfy this desire. <laughs> I just got to... And we do that, and it comes back with even more insistence in demands, an even wider range of needs. It is not... You cannot satisfy craving. It is insatiable. No matter how well provided for we are in this life, in any life, no matter how comfortable our life is, we always crave more. We crave more stuff. We crave more pleasure. We crave more... Um, self-enhancement. We, we, we want to become more of something. We want to be more successful. We want to be more handsome. We want to be more whatever. And this craving, when it gets a hand on something, when it gets, when it gets its goal within its grip, it doesn't let go. It clings. Link number nine. It just, it just, it pursues until it catches. And then it sticks. And it clings to whatever it's got a hold of. And this clinging is an extreme form of grasping. It is obsessive craving. It is just extraordinarily powerful. Once our mind gets latched onto what it wants, it doesn't let go easily. And it's not only pleasurable experiences that we cling to. We cling to our beliefs, our opinions, our views and opinions. Once we, you know, once you form an opinion about someone or something, it is extraordinarily difficult to let go. You really have to work at it, or you have to see something powerfully to the contrary in order to let go of that opinion. Another object of our clinging that the Buddha pointed out is Irrelevant practices on the path to freedom. He looked around the world and he said, you know, there's a lot of clinging to things and people and events and pleasure. And there's a lot of clinging to views and opinions. And there's an extraordinary amount of clinging to spiritual practices or disciplines or techniques or whatever that have no effect as far as freeing the mind. And the fourth object of clinging is a belief in a permanent, autonomous, self-determining entity within this process. Maybe the most, one of the most tenacious clinging 
that we are engaged in is this belief in a self. This craving and clinging, links eight and nine, are torments in the mind. And due to those torments, we act in pursuit of securing what we're craving and clinging to. And this is link number 10. Become, it's called becoming. Uh, it's really those actions that we take to extend this sense of self into the infinite future. It's also those actions that we take to defend our views and opinions. It's the practices that we take to uh, achieve our spiritual goals. Whatever it is we do, these are them. So whatever it is that we do to satisfy our views and opinions, our sense of self, are these actions of becoming. Laying down a kind of, it's like laying down a track into the future. What we will, what we want to experience in the future of ourselves, of experience, pleasure. We lay down the tracks now and we live out the future to reap the reward. Here again is where we perform collective karma. Where collectively we do the same thing. Whenever we do something as a group, we all have the same intention, we go through the same action, and we plant the same seed in each of our own minds to further some collective purpose, whether it's in propagation or defense of our group's ideas, views, and opinions, or to secure our own well-being. And we see this everywhere in the world. Everywhere. The political and economic and religious uh, collective karma. It is just rampant. And in fact, many of us uh, somehow it's really hard to get clear what is our karma and what is collective karma. And to be really clear, do we agree with, are we supporting what is being done in our name? It's really important to ask yourself that. Because collectively, our country, our religion, our families, whatever, is doing something with our tacit involvement. And so we have to look carefully at this collective karma and where it may be taking us. The inevitable result of performing karmic action is its result. Giving birth to its result. And that birth of that result is felt as the birth of a sense of self. Whether we're talking about birth in a lifetime sense, like 
the birth of this life, this existence, or whether we're talking about the birth of the next moment. It's the coming together of the five aggregates in a moment, and the sense of self that is clinging to it. It's the birth in this lifetime of this body and mind, giving it a name, and clinging to it. However we understand birth, whether it's moment to moment or lifetime to lifetime, it is the inevitable result of the tracks we've laid down in the past to reap this experience we now have. Earlier I referred to the apparent chaotic unfolding of the mind and how if we pay careful attention we begin to see that it's not so chaotic. It's said that as we move from one life to the next, there is a hierarchy of karmas that uh, take effect. And we get a glimpse of it in our own practice here. Theoretically, the texts say that at the time of death, and we can understand this, you know, lifetime death or momentary death, at the time of death, if one has performed a very weighty karmic act, it will be the karma that comes to the vision that conditions the next existence, the relinking or the rebirth connection. And what is a very weighty karma? The unwholesome, very weighty karmas are, of course, harming the Buddha, killing your parents, wounding, uh, no, killing a fully enlightened being. And interesting, the fifth very weighty karma is creating a schism in the Sangha. That's how important it is to be careful about your Sangha. And there's a lot of legal, uh, monastic legal understanding of what that means, but we can see it in the, the um, instructions and the guidance of, of many teachers to their students to really honor those with whom you practice the Dharma. It is really, really important to, as much as possible, put aside animosity and enmity and judgment and criticism and to realize the alignment of aspiration and intention and energy that you have with those who practice the Dharma, even if you can't stand them for whatever superficial reason. It is so important to protect your faith and their faith in the Dharma. If there's a weighty karma, it will be the karma that will arise in the mind to condition the relinking consciousness of the next existence. If there's no weighty karma, then I should go back. Other weighty karmas, other wholesome weighty karmas, include the ability to access deep absorptions, deep, constant, deeply concentrated states of mind, or any of the stages of uh, liberation. 
exert a powerful, powerful, I mean, they just, they are so, they require such a strong intention, the weighty karmas, they require such a strong intention that it's that result which will come up for uh, manifestation. If there is no weighty karma, then habitual karma, it is said that habitual karma will arise. Whatever it is that one has done a lot, whether it's skillful or unskillful, it is more likely to arise, to be that vision that arises in the moment of transition. And this can be wholesome or unwholesome. And it's those intentions which have a strong momentum in our life, something that we have done over and over and over again, has a lot of momentum. And so it's the momentum of that intention which gives rise to the result. If there's no weighty karma and there's no habitual karma, then what one is doing in that very moment, at the moment of transition from one life to the next, is the proximate karma, or it's the proximate intention that will give rise to uh, the next relinking or rebirth consciousness. And that's why it's in Buddhist countries, as someone is preparing to exit this life for another life, they spend a lot of time, they put a lot of faith in surrounding this person with beautiful uh, flowers and their friends and reminding them of all of the good things that they've done in their life, all the dharma, all the devotion, all the dana, all the sila, all of the uh, faith that they've had, to remind them of it so that their, their minds are filled with wholesome thoughts. So that that is the proximate intention, that's the proximate conditions of their mind to give rise to or to condition the relinking consciousness. When I was in, in Burma, I think I mentioned the woman who died while meditating in the meditation hall. And her family was so happy that she was meditating in this vast group of women and died. Also, while I was in Burma, there was one Sayadaw that I'd met who'd come to the monastery where I was in Rangoon and had spent some time there, and I spoke with him a little. And he went back to his monastery in another part of Burma, and I heard later that he died while giving a Dharma talk. Considered really uh, good, <laughs> good karma, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, just... Uh, I guess that's what you'd call it. But it's just a very wholesome proximate intention at the time of transition. And if there's no really heavy and no weighty karma to arise, or if one of the habitual karmas doesn't happen to arise, and the proximate karma is not very strong, then any karmic act, any random karma performed anywhere in the past, wandering in samsara, can come forward as the karmic act which conditions the next uh, relinking consciousness. That may also sound very esoteric and pretty far out in who says, so to speak. We see it in our practice. 
we get a good reflection of this in our practice. We come to sit, we first start practice, and once we get a certain momentum to our mindfulness, what is it that we start noticing? All those things that we've done, whether skillful or unskillful, that we were really invested in, right? Those most, that which we have put our most intense energy, determination, intention into. The really heavy things, the the heavy karmic things that we've done, they come up for review. And after we get a handle on them and we, we kind of see them where they are and come to some understanding, then what we have done over and over and over and over again in our life comes up endlessly. We see that all the time. We see how incessant the mind is in throwing up the same old thing over and over and over and over again. It's not accidental. It's not, it's not chaotic. It's because we have invested so much energy into that habit. It is going to come up again and again. And as Kamala said the other night, It's another opportunity to see this as it truly is and hopefully let go. Heavy intentions, habitual intentions, we also see what we are contemplating doing next or what we have just done comes up again. You know, a little thing. You know, you walk through the dining room and you see someone doing something. And then you just go sit, and you just, you just mind your own business. And that, what you just saw, comes up again, 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 again. Or you write, a, if you perform a, a karmic action, and you write a note to someone, you think, I'm just going to write this note and, and tie up this little situation that's going on here. I'll just fix it. I'll just write this note and get, put it aside. It'll be done with. You write the note, it's not done with. It just a whole new horizon of proliferation appears and we just, I should have said this. No, I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have wrote that. I better go get the note back and I'll change it and I'll put it, and I won't put it on the board, I'll put it on there. Zafu, and you know how it is. It's just what we have just done or what we contemplate doing endlessly rolls through the mind. And so it's not going to be any different as we approach the transition out of this life into the next. And of course we see, you know, if there's nothing heavy happening and there's nothing habitual happening and we're not doing anything, the mind is still full of all these random, meaningless, long forgotten, insignificant stuff from our past, right? It just goes on (laughs) endlessly, endlessly, and it goes on and on and on. And so we see in every moment of our close, careful looking in practice, this is the orderly, very non-chaotic, certainly not predictable, but certainly not chaotic, unfolding of the mind. Isn't it true? We see it. Now, where are we? We're getting close. After birth, 
have to born in whatever existence or moment we take form in, there is the inevitable growth, decay, death. The ending of that life, the ending of that sense of ourself that has come into being. This is link number 12. It is inevitable, whichever life form we take, whichever sense of ourself gets created in a moment, it will come to an end. And with that end, there is the loss, there's the grief, there's the fear, there's the unknown future, every moment. And there's this need to fill it again, to fill this emptiness of self which comes with every death. The dukkha that we experience in our life, the fear, the anxiety, the stress, the physical pain, the oppression, the, the, the vastness of dukkha that we experience, this is the frightening thunder on the horizon. That is just as far as we can see. And it ends in death. Or it comes to a temporary end in this death. We see it even in a moment of thought. In a moment of thought, we get caught in a thought, our sense of ourself is fully developed. The situation is there, we have a body, we have feelings, we have a, a relationship to it, and it goes on for a while, you know, a, a few seconds or a few minutes, a, a day maybe, or two, a week, maybe a whole lifetime it goes on, and we're living in a bubble, a little bubble, a little cocoon, of a sense of self. And eventually, at some point, that bubble is going to break and that sense of ourself is going to be gone. Mindfulness practice breaks the bubble more often. It does. Mindfulness practice punctures this bubble of selfness that we create out of our internal monologue over and over again. It's just, it's just saying, not now, no, 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 don't get caught here. Just let this one go, let this go, let this go, let this go. And so it feels like an ongoing, momentary death. Just emptiness, 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 rolling on. And so we've come full circle from ignorance through actions through the whole arising of the five aggregates, the responding and reacting to the pleasant and unpleasant feelings with more actions to pursue and to avoid, giving rise to another existence which we inevitably fall from. And this cycle is the cycle of samsara that has been going on, that is continuing to go on, and will continue to go on until and unless we practice and it was the Buddha's precise and penetrating wisdom to look at this endless and inevitable chain of causality and say, Where's, and ask, where is the weak link? Where can we break this chain of causality? Obviously, we cannot change the past. And the past actions that we've taken must give rise to their result. And those results are links three through seven. 
But it's right here at link seven where we apply mindfulness. This is the weak link in this law of causality. We cannot avoid feelings. We cannot avoid feeling pleasant and unpleasant mental and physical stuff. There's just no way to avoid it. Even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, felt physical discomfort. But it's right here where we can break our habits. And every moment of mindfulness is not responding habitually to those feelings. And so there is no further conditioning from link seven feeling to link eight craving happening. And it requires that we open to and feel knowingly pleasant is pleasant, unpleasant is unpleasant. And let it stop right there. Not pursue, not avoid, but just feel. And so in that, there is the ending of this cycle. You can see, it just, it just stops right there. More results are coming every moment, and we just stop, 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 be, be with, be with, be with, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. Every time we note anything mindfully. Anytime we're mindful, we are feeling the pleasant and unpleasant. Now, you may not be noting pleasant unpleasant. You may be noting hardness, tightness, tension, thinking, planning, whatever. But within that, there is the recognition. Inherent in that is the understanding of its pleasantness and unpleasantness, and not following through with craving, clinging, actions, and future existence. Practice deconditions our habits. It breaks the link. It, it, it's kind of like a blacksmith beating on this chain and over and over and over and over again we just keep hitting the chain at this place and in time it breaks. And the link between feeling and craving is broken. We experience it as yogis when we let go. When we feel our desires and not act out. When we feel the pleasantness and not chase after. When we feel the unpleasantness and not run away. When we accept things as they are. Just pleasant is pleasant, unpleasant is unpleasant. When we accept the sense of self that arises without resistance, and we let it go and feel that emptiness, empty of self. And by accepting these truths of pleasant and unpleasant, that it's impermanent, it's not really under our control, craving doesn't arise, grasping doesn't take hold, actions in pursuit of pleasant or unpleasant don't arise, no subsequent birth, and therefore no, 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 no further dukkha. Mindfulness puts the brakes on this rolling wheel of existence, this, this wheel of suffering. 
insight breaks it. And in this whole endless, inevitable cycling of cause and effect unfolding, it is mindfulness that notices the arising of these 12 links. It's equanimity that accepts them as they are. It's feeling that experiences the pleasantness and unpleasantness. It's perception that recognizes the three characteristics. It's non-attachment that lets them all go. And it's wisdom that realizes the truth of the end of suffering. This is the enlightening of the mind. There is no one doing this. It is the conditions unfolding. This is the way to freedom. This is the way to the end of suffering. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.